Our text is Psalm 131, Psalm 131. The 19th century, well-known 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said that this was one of the shortest psalms to read and one of the longest to learn. Shortest to read, longest to learn. Because it turns out that for all of its simple beauty, Psalm 131 calls us radically into the depths of the Christian life. And so we're going to make three points this morning. They're there in the outline. Hubris in verse 1. Hubris being pride, but I wanted three H's. Humility in verse 2. And hope. Hubris, humility, and hope. So first, hubris. The text starts with a confession to the Lord about the condition of the psalmist's soul. Namely, the psalmist says that he's repudiated, that he's renounced hubris and pride. And thus, this is a dangerous and a surprising confession. My heart is not proud, Lord, he says. (coughs) My eyes are not haughty. Now, this is one of those confessions which, in the very making of it, you run the risk of undermining it. When's the last time you told God that? (laughs) Telling God how humble you are, very dangerous business. (laughs) And it can often be a sign of how humble you're not. I mean, the awareness of some attainment of humility can be, and often is, the very ground of hubris and pride. This is much of what Jesus is concerned about in the Sermon on the Mount. He recognizes, and this is important for the Christian community to recognize, he recognizes that it is the very practices of piety, that it is prayer, that it is almsgiving, that it is fasting, that are the ground of hypocrisy. Be careful, he says, how you pray and how you fast and the way you give alms. It is the the precise ground upon the stuff that we're doing here that creates pride and hypocrisy given the nature of human beings. Virtue without pride is a very, very elusive thing. And yet the psalmist says, surprisingly, that that danger is not really present here. That he is truthfully exposing his heart to the searcher of hearts. That he has, in fact, a heart which is not haughty. And we shall see this is because he has come to this state after some struggle. God is determined to form us into the image of Jesus Christ, to put this in New Testament categories. And that means he will break us 
And if necessary, he will afflict us in love because he is fixed on creating true humility and lowliness in our souls. He's determined to bring it about. And so the psalmist confesses here sincerely, my heart, he says, my inner person is not proud. And my eyes, here that means my outer demeanor, my eyes are not haughty. Now we know that God opposes a proud heart. And it's contrary to the nature of God himself. Pride does not just destroy humility, it poisons all virtue. The proud of heart esteem themselves too highly. They're wise in their own eyes, Proverbs tells us. In Paul's language, they think more highly of themselves than they ought, rather than think in their hearts with sober judgment. Just as virtue without pride is very elusive, sober self-evaluation is a very rare thing. We are not good at seeing ourselves whole the way other people see us. And part of our pride in our hearts is that we're wise in our own eyes. We think too highly of ourselves, too lowly of others. And, of course, the psalmist mentions haughty eyes here, which is the first thing in the list of things God hates in Proverbs chapter 6. He hates proud or haughty eyes because people with haughty eyes are disdainful. They look down their noses at other people. Maybe those other people are uneducated rubes. Maybe they're educated elitist snobs. Maybe they have the wrong political views. Maybe their theology is all wrong. But whatever the reason is, this combination of a proud heart and haughty eyes It reflects an inner hubris and an outward contempt. It is very hard to hide this contempt. It shows up in the way you move your eyes, posture, and body language. And Paul commands us to forsake both these things, this kind of pride and this kind of haughtiness, when he says in Romans 12, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with those of low position Do not be conceited. So again, the psalmist here, before God, tells the Lord that he has come to a place where he's neither proud in heart nor haughty in eyes. And as I said, we'll see that he doesn't get there overnight. Now he moves here in the text From these attitudes, he tells the Lord, I do not have these attitudes, Lord. And then he moves to actions which he doesn't pursue. And I don't do these things, Lord. I do not concern myself with, he says, or walk after great matters. Things too wonderful for me. This this line here, that second line in verse 1 
can easily be misread to, you know, to imply a sort of lazy complacency. Right? I don't seek anything great. A kind of avoidance of difficult and challenging things in life. I won't reach too high. I won't think too hard. I'll just stick to the simple, easy stuff. So I want to tease out what this means. The key here is seeing that the first half of verse 1, renouncing pride and haughtiness, that's what governs the second half of verse 1. So here I'm going to address two things. I'm still under the first point, hubris. But the two things I want to talk about are God and reason. That's the first thing. And the second thing is vocation or calling. So we're still thinking about what the psalmist means when he says, you know, I don't seek out these wonderful things, things too great for me. So first, God and reason. God himself very clearly, is a great matter and a wonderful thing. Any proper understanding of this psalm is going to have to come to terms with that. He's the greatest of great matters, the most wonderful of wonderful things. And we're most surely to be concerned with him. David, right, he's the author of this text. He surely was concerned with God. And he left us some extraordinary and some challenging poetry. He's a poet, theologian, warrior king. And so the psalmist is not saying, I'm not going to apply my reason vigorously to the high mystery of God and his works. I don't worry about that stuff. I mean, clearly David did just that, as did all the other authors of Scripture. So, we could, we could say it this way. Our eyes are not to be lifted up in haughtiness toward others, but they are to be lifted up to the Lord. Right? And we're repeatedly exhorted to be concerned with the high matters of Holy Scripture. And deeply so. Yeah, I do think the text applies here. It applies this way, in that in the knowledge of God, we must not be proud or haughty. Remember, the first line of verse 1 governs the second line. We're to be like newborn babes. It's a metaphor David's going to use here very shortly in this psalm. Longing for the milk of the word that we might grow eventually to handle the meat of the word. Right? Scripture tells us that. But the key... The key here is we're to be docile, submissive, listeners to the text. We stand under the text in humility, not over it in haughtiness. People who stand over Scripture in haughtiness never learn anything from it. They're just constantly telling us what they think it means. So we're not to be wise in our own eyes, our own haughty eyes. But we are to reason vigorously under, in the light of revelation. God is for reason. He's for reason. He created it. But it's wounded. And it needs restoration in his healing light. 
And so God seeks a holy, sanctified, reasoning people. What the text has in view, I submit, is arrogant reason, presumptuous reason, reason independent of God. Reasoning which refuses to be restructured, repentantly chastened in the light of the gospel. That's hubris. Remember, the gospel has appeared. And Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate. And that wisdom has rendered foolish or presumptuous the reasoning of the world's philosophers. And debaters, none of whom told us that God would save the world through a crucified Messiah. I mean, I like Aristotle, but he's far from that. So remember again, the basic concern here is with pride and haughtiness. And the knowledge of the great matters, the wonderful things of God. We are to seek in humility and in vigor. But even for those who embrace the the gospel, this is important, I think, to see, these matters almost inevitably lead to pride. This is, again, part of Jesus' concern at numerous points in his ministry. Just the way piety is the ground that hypocrisy grows on, the knowledge of God is the ground of pride. Right? We, are, we are playing with dangerous things in the Christian church. And to have them unveiled to you is to make you subject to pride. Alexander Pope said, a little learning is a dangerous thing. And that you have to drink deeply to be sobered again. And so, this is why the Apostle Paul can say to us in 1 Corinthians, knowledge, he says, and and by knowledge, he means knowledge without holy, sanctified reason. That kind of knowledge just puffs a person up. And so I think what's in view here is an arrogance in the great and wonderful things of God. Handling them as if they're common things. We can handle these things in a way that they're presumptuous. In a way that they, they don't search or break or humble or challenge or ever correct us. There are people that appear never to be searched, broken, humbled, or challenged by Scripture. They just want to tell other people what it means. They don't, their Bible reading is not a crucible for them. That's a dangerous place to be. That's a sign of a person who's not underneath the word, letting the word criticize them. And so the text is opposing that. It's opposing these pretensions which exalt us as the thinkers, which puff up our own self-importance. Somebody once quipped along these lines that the difference between God and us is that God does not think he's us. So this text is a sobering reminder that we are not God, that he's infinite, and that he infinitely exceeds us. So 
we need this deep self-awareness about our limitations. That's a big part of humility, a self-awareness of our limitations. We know that we can apprehend God, but we can't fully comprehend God. We, we grab the, the, the corner of his robe. Right? Deuteronomy tells us the things that are revealed, they're for you. You should give yourself to them vigorously. But there are things that are hidden. And they belong to the Lord. They're too great. They're too wonderful to grasp. And wisdom does know when an inquiry has to come to an end. It's not that we are not to reason or to be concerned with the high thing of God. But we are to know when the inquiry must come to an end. Because the one whom we are thinking of and confessing and praising is never mastered by us. Right? God never is domesticated by us. He's never controlled. He's, never, he's always opaque. He's never fully transparent to us. He's never captured. He's never object. He's always subject. Living subject. Right? Studying the Bible is not like studying a geology text. One subject is dead, the other subject is a living person who is speaking to you and addressing you and criticizing you. You're the object in the Bible study. Rocks are the object in the geology textbook. God is subject, and as subject, he's the living, incomprehensible Lord. And thus Augustine wonderfully put it, that when it comes to these things... What we need, he said, is a certain learned ignorance. A certain learned ignorance. So the second thing I want to say about applying this text, again, I'm still under the first point, is about one's vocation or calling. So here again, step back and remember this. This is a psalm of David. Right? And David, in fact, had status. He had power. He had high position with all of its demands as the military leader and the king of Israel. So this is not a text which opposes ambition if, if it's rightly directed. But it is opposed, the text is, to blind ambition, to vain ambition, to this inordinate desire for greatness. What the text is opposing is a kind of grasping or thrusting yourself into positions or realms where you're neither gifted nor called. It's trying to instill a kind of contentment with the vocation that God has given us in life. There are some restless souls who find the stuff right in front of them too lowly and too boring. But the great things, things for which they're unqualified, they deeply desire those. And so they vainly chase around after things that are too wonderful for them. That's hubris. Hubris. And the psalmist has come to renounce it. And he's come to embrace a posture of humility. And so our second point will be to look at this humility. And it's presented in that wonderful picture in verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted myself. 
And so here we learn something important. I alluded to it a few minutes ago. The psalmist did not come to the place of verse 1 where his heart wasn't proud or his eyes haughty, where he didn't arrogantly concern himself with great matters or things too wonderful for himself. He doesn't come to that place, that state, if you will, of spiritual contentment. He doesn't get there overnight. He says, I have calmed and I have quieted myself. It's a condition that was some time, probably a long time in coming. I have calmed and quieted myself. In other words, I've been working at this. The idea is that his disposition, his temperament, his soul has been smoothed out. That's the idea in the text. And this means that the rough and the turbulent edges of his personality have been knocked off by the grace of God. He himself is no longer rocky ground. And this takes decades. His demeanor, his approach to life and to people and to situations, he says, it's now placid. It's serene. This is a wonderful thing. And it's greatly to be desired in the saints. A large part, I think, a large part of sanctity consists of serenity. A large part of sanctity consists of serenity. Harried and hurried people are rarely holy people. And so the psalmist says, I've been working at this. He says, I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Which, of course, implies that he was, before being weaned, like a nursing child. But he was restless, and he was fussy, and he was demanding. He was eager and self-centered, attached to his mother primarily out of his need. There was a time then where he couldn't have uttered the words of verse 1. But now he's content. As the next line indicates, he's content like a weaned child. He's secure. He's trusting. He rests in his mother's presence. Not just her gifts, but in her presence. So this movement from nursing to being weaned is being liberated from what one thought was once indispensable, but is now denied. Right? That's, the, that's a test, a sort of litmus test of this in your own life. When God takes away something that you're convinced is indispensable, but now it's denied, you enter the process of moving from nursing to being weaned. And the psalmist has done that. In between... There's a great struggle. And this means that he's saying, I've been weaned from pride. So let me just step back for a minute here. One of the things that happens when a text like this gets read, it's a short text. It's certainly charming. You can embroider it and get it on your refrigerator in about this much space, right? And the text gets read with a sort of romanticized gloss. But what's missed is that there was surely a struggle 
Because the psalmist is saying, I had to be torn away or weaned from pride and from haughtiness, from arrogance, from vain ambition, from thinking too highly of myself, from treating other people with contempt as if they were commodities. And this weaning is painful. James says that humans can tame just about everything. But we can't tame our own tongue. We are, if nothing, restless creatures, turbulent creatures, because we are in many ways cut off from the rock who is our stability and our peace. The rock metaphor means God is stability and peace. Remember that the Apostle Paul uses language somewhat like this. He says that he had to learn, he had to learn to be content. In whatever circumstances he found himself in, because that's what God was teaching him. And in Paul's case, as is often the case, it came through long, long suffering. The Apostle Paul wasn't born content. He was beaten and lashed and stoned and exiled into contentment. God is committed, as I said earlier, to forming this in us because this is forming Christ in us. And that means God is committed to breaking us of our egoism and our independence and our pride. And so it always goes in this order. Struggle, 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 and then some repose and peace. God opposes the proud That, by the way, is what causes the friction. It causes the turmoil. It generates the resistance in our lives because God in love is opposing himself to our pride. But he gives grace to the humble. And so the psalmist here has come to this place, much like the Apostle Paul, where he he can say something like Paul does. He says, I place no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in my own endowments, my own achievements, my own credentials, independent of God. In them, I place no confidence. Now it is his ambition to be pleasing to God. And so the text is after this, destroying pride, reordering ambition. Now you can see what I said at the outset. This charming little psalm is calling you into the depths of the Christian experience because God wants to destroy our pride and reorder our ambitions. Now, for the psalmist, greatness in the kingdom is defined the way Jesus defined it in the gospel lesson when he placed a child in the midst of the disciples and said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Such children do not see great and wonderful things that are beyond them. And they certainly don't frantically fret about the finances and the future like their parents are doing. Why? Well, they know their mother's going to take care of them. So they receive life gladly under God's hand. They seek neither equality with nor independence from their mother. And so it is to be with us. This is what life under God's nourishing wing is to be like. We seek neither equality with God nor independence from God. 
So this weaned, childlike posture, unlike much of the modern world, by the way, understands that liberty, liberty does not come from slaying the authority figures in your life. This child wants to be with the mother. Liberty does not come from rebellion against authority. But there's a couple other things I want to say here that it's not. It's, it's, neither is this pure resignation as in some Eastern spiritualities. Like simply abdicating your own agency and complacently saying, whatever will be, will be. There are people who are resigned in that sense. That's not the resignation the text has in view. Nor is the resignation here a kind of detached world weariness. Everybody knows somebody like this, right? I mean, often there's a person who's tried to suck all the marrow out of life, right? To live life to the fullest. And at some point, they get, you know, beyond 33 years of age, and they give up. And that sort of person, depending on their personality type, can appear to be quite content, not seeking great things. But what they really are is cynical. They're really bored. They're really world-weary. They've really given up hope. Out from the outside, it's hard to tell. Yeah, Joe here, he, he really fits the bill for Psalm 131. He's not seeking any wonderful things or any great things. But that's not what's going on here. What, it, what is in view here is a very hard-won serenity through sanctity. This is an otherworldly kind of thing. It's a humility which is the deepest form of sanity. I know I've said that here before, but humility is the deepest form of sanity. It means to see God as God and to see you as you, which means to live in the real world. It's to accept creaturely limitations, life in all of its agitations, content to be embraced by God's maternal, yes, the prophets use the image, God's maternal love. And so finally, the psalmist in verse 3 urges Israel to corporately to embrace this posture, the posture he's embraced. He wants them to hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Now, this hope's going to look a lot like the weaned child looked. I want to say two things about this hope. The first one is this. Humility grounds and nourishes. It creates hope. In other words, we lack hope often because we're proud and haughty, because our ambitions are disordered. Now, this is not often connected, but pride means we, we must control. Right? We must achieve. We must determine the future. Pride grasps and lurches and lunges, and in doing so, it obscures hope. It refuses to rest like a weaned child, trusting the future to its mother. Pride is a form of playing God. It's a form of impatience with God's coming eschatological glorious kingdom. But humility allows us to see clearly, to evaluate things soberly, to trust the one who will consummate things, to do things well. So 
humility grounds, if you will, or nourishes hope. But the second thing to see here is that we can reverse this. We can reverse this and we could say hope nourishes humility. So we have this hope, right? We have this, the grandeur, the sweeping cosmic majesty of the Christian hope. When a person sees it, what it does is it places our short lives and our feeble efforts into sober perspective. Hope nourishes humility. Yes, our roles are real, but they're just a gracious gift of participating. You get called to participate in a reality where the mighty, mighty, mighty works are done and can only be done by the Lord God. I mean, think about it. What do we have to do with the creation of the world? Or the call of Abraham? Or the exodus from Egypt? Or the giving of the law? Or the restoration from the exile? Or the incarnation? Or the obedience of Jesus? Or his death? Or his resurrection? Or his ascension? Or the gift of the Spirit? Or the coming of the new creation? What in the world did you have to do with any of that? Nothing. The fact that you have anything at all to do in the Christian life is because that God has graciously said, here, I'm going to let you participate. Right? So to have the Christian hope is to have a kind of humility about the location and the proportion of our role. The glory which is to be revealed, the New Testament teaches us, far exceeds any relationship to even our most devoted service and labor. Hope nourishes humility because it nourishes modesty, sobriety. And we live in the aftermath now of the great redemptive acts of God and Jesus Christ. And so we have more reason to hope than Israel did. Right? We have seen that one has come who was not proud or haughty, but he was meek and lowly. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He rejected these satanic temptations to blind ambition and grasping. And this one knew distress. He knew agitation of soul. He was troubled. He sweat blood in Gethsemane. And then what did he do? He got up and he went like a weaned child in that sovereign serenity that Jesus displays in the gospel into the teeth of his passion under the, the brutal Roman state. Right In hope, then, he entrusted his life to the Father whose will was his food, his nursing nourishment. He is the humble singer of Psalm 131. And he's your hope. So I want to charge you, let us imitate him. This humility, this serenity, this hope are God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Amen.